One effect of psychedelics on the brain is increased neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is the ability of the brain to change, to form new connections, to establish new information. So different parts of the brain make a connection when you, when you learn something. And if you go through that memory again and again, the connection becomes stronger and stronger. With psychedelics, it helps establish these connections and potentially strengthen them. Hello and welcome to Polyweb. I'm your host, Sara Landitortoli, and my guest today is Marvin Domchen, founder of the Mind Foundation, a European non-profit organization that promotes psychedelic research and therapy. With Marvin, we talk about psychedelic drugs, benefits and risks associated with certain type of treatment for mental health conditions, what are the most common misconceptions, and the current state of research. I've been following psychedelic research for a while now, and therefore I'm incredibly excited to be able to bring you this episode today. But before we jump into the episode, please note that Nothing in this conversation constitutes in any way, shape, or form medical advice. And what is discussed here is the current state of research as of April 2023. And with that, enjoy the episode. Marvin, welcome to Polyweb. Thanks for the invitation, Sarah. Good to be here. And uh, it's good to have you here as well. Uh, um, this is kind of uncharted territory uh, for both myself uh, and for a listener of this podcast. But I've been reading a lot about the topic that we're going to cover during the episode, which is psychedelics. Uh, and I think that this is one of the most important breakthrough that is going to happen uh, you know, in, in the, and is happening in the medical field. And I just, uh, having met you, I just thought that, um, uh, recording an episode together and really bring to light what's the status of the research uh, on this topic is very, very important. And maybe people start getting familiar with this topic. So perhaps I think a good place to start is, uh, what do I and what do listeners uh, need to know about your earlier years uh, that can inform uh, your your journey up until now, and and specifically the creation of the of the Mind Foundation? Yeah, the Mind Foundation is European Berlin based research and professional training organization focused on the medical and for human development purposes, implementation of psychedelic experiences, right? This goes beyond drugs. This goes beyond substances. It's about well-being, learning, healing, and medical treatments. I think that's not necessarily clear to anyone hearing about psychedelics, psychedelic drugs, psychedelic art, psychedelic culture, and so on and so forth. So um, if you're asking me about the reason why I'm in this, I, like many of us, was exposed to this culture, to such environments. I mean, uh, anyone who's, you know, hopefully many uh, who grew up with listening to the Beatles uh, know that there's something about psychedelics and the music, you know, and uh, most of the great rock music wouldn't be without it. And there's this very typical psychedelic art. We all have an idea of what psychedelic art should, would look like. 
it's kind of a, a large subculture that's somehow a drug culture, but then also sort of leaks into mainstream culture again, you know, referencing the music. So from a, from, I'm, I have a background, academic background in cultural studies as well as sociology. So uh, also from an academic standpoint, this was also always something that kind of connected to me, right? I would write papers in, in, in university. I also did my master thesis on identity work and LSD in the 1960s. You cannot study American history without looking at postmodern times, post-World War, the hippies, etc. So this is what, what led me to this topic, really. At which point uh, uh, researching psychedelics and trying to understand what those compounds are, did you realize that there was something uh, more to it and, and that you wanted to contribute uh, to, to the research uh, and uh, ultimately even creating a foundation around psychedelics? I, I was barely aware that there has been real clinical research uh, happening since the 1950s, unbeknownst to many, even in, in the United States, well until the 1970s. The last psychedelic trial con was concluded in, in Baltimore in Spring Grove Hospital in 1977, so that's way after the regulation and, or ban of, of psych psychoactive substances in 71. So sort of paving my own way and learning what literature was there, again, approaching it more from a, from a cultural studies and essayistic perspective, reading Aldous Huxley, etc., I had no idea there was this research that had happened before and slowly was beginning to re-emerge uh, again in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins, for example, in 2006. But during my studies, there was not much to learn. Then I found this uh, psychedelic conference here in Berlin, which was called Entheoscience. I, I went to this conference and I was quite disappointed, frankly, with the quality of it. This It had science in the name, but it didn't have much to do with science. It was mostly about people's experiences with drugs and how they think this made them a better person or how they believe others should use these substances. So this was not the place for me. And I met one of the co-founders, Henrik Jung Abel, at this conference. And uh, he actually criticized this field and the previous attempts to, to do something on the ground about psychedelics, right? These illegalized substances. And uh, we connected a few months later, founded the Mind Foundation. So... What's the role of the Mind Foundation and uh, what role is it playing right now in, you know, in the research of psychedelics drugs? Uh, and, and for listeners also, can you give us a definition of what psychedelics drugs are? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's really not something we should take for granted, that everybody knows what we're actually talking about. <laughs> Again, everybody has some sort of culturally imposed uh, uh, ideas of what psychedelic is or what it would look like as an art or what music that would be or what drugs it would be. It would be. Typically, psychedelic drugs are a class of psychoactive substances that connect to the serotonin receptor in the brain. And these include LSD, psilocybin, which is the active compound in magic mushrooms. It would include mescaline, which is found in peyote and some pedro cacti. And there are a couple of others, but of course, DMT also, which is uh, the active component in a, in a very most touristically successful brew now in South America. It has been used for hundreds of years. 
called ayahuasca, the brew. So this all would be chemically related, also in subjective experience and effects, similar drugs of the class of classical psychedelic drugs. And then there are atypical psychedelic drugs such as ketamine or salvia divinorum. They also have different pharmacological and pharmacokinetic effects on the brain and subjectively also. But one that one thing that all the larger class of atypical and typical psychedelic drugs share is that they substantially, temporarily, substantially alter perception of self, visual perception of surroundings, thought processes, and yeah, aesthetic and cognitive patterns. Okay, that is the explanation of psychedelic drugs. What does the Mind Foundation do? Well, what is, what's relevant about psychedelic drugs? Why? Is this just something for fun that hippies take? No. And again, as I mentioned before, in the 1950s already, there was great psychiatric research into substance use disorder, into the different conditions that now, especially we focus on depression treatment. That's one single administration as part of a psychotherapeutic treatment or multiple administrations in a therapeutic process. Administrations of these drugs can be a significant boost or possibly a breakthrough for individual patient populations to alleviate and reduce or reduce their symptoms. So these drugs are really re-entering the medical field now for a good reason. We have good scientific evidence that's continuously growing. In this regard, MIND is part of the largest psilocybin clinical trial. It's a phase 2B study. I'm saying the largest because this is the largest science-initiated trial of its kind. We're having 144 treatment-resistant depression patients that are being treated. It's almost, almost completed. And we're also training medical doctors, psychotherapists. We are influencing, let's say we're educating the public. We're having an impact on public discourse on psychedelic drugs and also we're educating professionals. I really want to follow up uh, on a Mind Foundation and uh, the research that you, you've run so far. But first, I want to take a step back uh, and uh, go back to the definition of, of psychedelics, uh, because I think it's really important uh, that first we get this very clear. Like, for example, you mentioned in your, uh, in your answer regarding definition of psychedelics that what all those compounds have in common is the fact that uh, temporarily you're able to disconnect uh, from, from the self. And if you want, also from the concept of time and space, right? And I want to ask you, why is this important uh, for treatment of certain condition, mental conditions, and what those conditions are? And how is this different uh, from treatment, uh, medical tre treatment with the uh, SSRI? That for listeners who don't know, SSRI are the medication that you normally will get prescribed right now by psychiatrists uh, to treat uh, certain mental conditions such as depression, but also panic attack, for example. Maybe also importantly, you know, you said... You, you, you can disconnect, you can change time and, and space perception. One thing that's important to notice also, it may just happen to people that have these substances or take the substances or to patients, right? One, one, one factor is also loss of control potentially over thought principles. People don't use control with the legs and arms, no. But the, the 
different subjective experience of the self and the surroundings is not necessarily always in control of the patient and therefore can also be a frightening, a very challenging experience, right? Yeah. Whatever this, this, this quality of the experience bring in, brings in the long time or, or in the long term, the immediate acute effects can be very disorienting and also scary for the patient. We will talk about the risk and, you know, adverse yeah. experience after, because yeah. of course it's yeah. important and people are aware that, you know, this sounds really, really good on paper, but there are risks associated to yeah. it as well. So yeah, why, why is this relevant in medicine now and how is it different from SSRIs? Uh, it's true that the conventional psychiatric medicines rather treat sim symptoms and therefore are usually prescribed over decades and patients experience relief only temporarily and as long as they take these medications. The, the paradigm shift that enthusiasts or let's say optimists are hoping for now would mean that instead of having this continued medication to treat symptoms, psychedelic therapy as a new instrument in the psychiatric toolkit, right? It will never replace other treatments, but it might be an additional valuable tool that we're just establishing that this tool can have a sort of transformative psychotherapeutic approach that patients would go in, have conventional, this is our approach at least, and psychedelic therapy is not fully manualized or standardized still. It's still in its early form, you could say. We don't have one unified global approach to psychedelic therapy. But the approach that we have here is you still will have psychiatrists, psychotherapists, with whom the patient goes through conventional psychotherapy training, in which then there is, at some point after enough preparation, a dosing session with one of these compounds. And that is really a process in which it could happen that the patient has a loosening, a disintegration, temporary disintegration of established patterns of thought, ways of seeing the world, ways of perception, ways of being, and therefore might be able to detach. One thing that, that is very common is that a certain, let's say, brain state, it's called default mode network, a certain connected state of the brain, which we're normally in, in depressed patients becomes very rigid. And these patients start always thinking of the same, or these people start thinking always in the same patterns and are, are very unflexible. They're just stuck with where they are, right? And if this is something connected to negative feelings, ne negative feelings of the self, of course, people suffer a lot. So having the chance to detach from that temporarily might give them a glimpse of how things can be different. And if patients have this experience, we can also support the likelihood of this occurring, that this needs to be integrated afterwards, right? So during the dosing session, it's usually not too much interaction. It's more about an introspective experience where people can look at themselves, can look at their life undisturbed. And then post-session, there will be integration sessions, further psychotherapeutic counseling, in which the patients learn how to bring this Altered perspective, if you will. It's not an expanded consciousness. I wouldn't call it that. A different altered state and an altered perspective. Okay, they can bring and keep this in their lives independent of the substances. So here we have a significant splitting up from this continuous symptomatic relief through continued uh, medication, as opposed to having a transformative experience and learning how to keep this and in integrate this into your life. This is very powerful and very, very different from what SSRI are doing, that 
while helpful, maybe in certain instances, most often come with a wide range of uh, of side effects. And I wonder how are the side effects uh, or we were mentioning it at the beginning of the conversation, you know, what are the risks associated with consumption of psychedelics and side effects? And maybe, again, uh, comparing the different side effects uh, from, from the one of uh, standard uh, medicine and SSRI. Yeah, I, I, I cannot give you a full list of the, the side, possible side effects of conventional psychiatric uh, medication, but these include weight, weight gain, uh, fatigue, sexual dysfunction. There are several things. And if you imagine you have a patient that's already depressed and then they're getting this medication, they're sexually defunct because of the medicine. That's not exactly encouraging, right? It might make them more depressed. Of course, you see one, one difference here that's with psychedelic medicine or psychedelic treat, assisted treatments, you would not continuously pre prescribe this medication. The person would be not under the influence of a medication most of the time. Right, an entire treatment regimen with, with psychedelics such as psilocybin or LSD would last a few months and probably have one to five dosing sessions in total over the span of multiple months. So most of the time, the person would not be under the influence of any psychoactive substance. Um, secondly, of course, looking, looking at other side effects that are not part of the acute, so while the person is under the influence, of course, it can be side effects such as a tachycardia, so the heart racing heart, physiologically psychedelics are safe. And to really overdose someone, you would have to overdose a tremendous amount. There, there's very low toxicity and there are no known deaths or, or, or physical severe reactions because of psychedelics themselves. Rather, people were maybe disoriented in an uncontrolled environment and hurt themselves as an accident. This is something that could have happened. But apart from that, Nausea as possible as an acute side effect, again, disorientation, heart racing, but, but not much more than that. Then it is possible in very rare cases, but it has to be addressed because I don't think people talk about it often enough. There's this phenomenon of, of HPPD, hallucinogen persistent perceptive disorder. So people would come out of a psychedelic experience and for extended time, weeks after, had the feeling that they're still under the influence of the substance and they feel there's something different in the field of vision and their way of thinking, their way of being. This is not researched very much. It's not, not we don't have, I don't, we don't know much about it, but the phenomenon exists, although it's very rare. And then, of course, not, another thing that could be the result is a, is a negative effect or as an side effect is there's no proper screening. It is possible to reliably screen out risk patients for whom these substances are not appropriate, right? That is not the panacea for everyone. Um, there are people with specific genetic dispositions. If you have a history of a psychiatric disorders in your near family, which you have had as the patient, you have had psychotic episodes before, you have been diagnosed before, you know that you are prone to, to um, mental disorder, then this is also something the person should not take because it could trigger latent psychosis that are maybe you know, somewhere waiting to pop that doesn't normally happen. Yeah. For whom instead? For which type of uh, mental uh, mental issue and mental disorders has psychedelics proven uh, very effective, uh, at least in clinical trials? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's only growing, but classically, several affective disorders, substance use disorder has been explored since the 1950s with good successes. There are studies going on now. Again, major depression, treatment-resistant depression. Last year, I think it was last year, a study came out in Imperial College London where they compared, that was the first time that they compared, had a direct comparison between psilocybin, the active compound in magic mushrooms, and escitalopram, which is one of the most prescribed conventional psychiatric medicines and SSRI. And they found that psilocybin did not perform better or worse, not significantly better or worse than escitalopram. So that's good, at least it's not worse, right? But it's not convincing enough to, to, to bring this new medication in. Uh, there were secondary measures. Those were not the primary outcomes that they measured, not the depression scales, but things like quality of life, well-being, overall happiness. And in all these, psilocybin treated patients scored significantly higher. So in further studies, this should be investigated. And of course, I think as, as much as we were looking at a, at a transformative approach with, with psychedelic treatments, that makes people healthier and starts at the root of the disorder. We should also take, take away from the pathological perspective, what is the problem, but how can we make people healthier? And health as in defined as a complete sense of well-being, purpose in life, feeling creative, feeling fulfilled. Of course, there are a lot of social economic sectors coming in with this too that cannot be treated by a mental health professional. But the overall approach should, should be a salutogenic rather than just treating what is wrong. Uh, again, coming back to the atypical psychedelic substances, this would include MDMA, which is a totally different substance class. It also has quite a different subjective effects profile, but it's still considered as one of the bigger group of psychedelics. It is, has been designated a breakthrough status by the American FDA in 2018 for the treatment of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And then there are trials happening with uh, anorexia, nervosa, so eating disorder. There are trials going going to start in, in cognitive impairment. Johns Hopkins has also been starting to look into depression in Alzheimer's patients. We have at least a good theoretical foundation to believe due to the neurological effects of psychedelics, there might also be potential to actually prevent neuroinflammation, which is dementia. And yeah, the whole, a, a wide range of anxiety and other affective disorders too. How is, uh, how is it related to Alzheimer? I didn't understand the connection between uh, dementia, Alzheimer and, and psychedelics. Can you, can we go back to that? Because that's new to me. Alzheimer's disease is a form of dementia that has been discovered by this by this person called Alzheimer's. So it's named after a person, but it's also the name of this disease, right? Which is cognitive impairment that usually happens in old people with loss of memory and so on. How is this connected to psychedelics? So one thing that's that's also quite quite interesting and unique to psychedelics is that also compared to SSRIs, right? SSRIs do something with the brain and makes people feel different. Psychedelics also kind of do that, but they trigger a different psychological process. So we have psychological effects on one hand, right? SSRIs don't bring me to see things in a different light. They just don't make me feel so bad. 
So there's a psychological component to the, connected to the psychedelic experience. And on the other hand side, we have the neurobiological factors, the mechanisms. Things change in the brain. Different areas in the brain become more connected. Some areas that are normally more active become downregulated versus other areas that go upregulated, become more higher regulated and become more exit. This also has an effect that is called neuroplasticity. So now we're only talking about the neurobiological mechanisms, right? One effect of psychedelics on the brain is increased neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is the ability of the brain to change, to form new connections, to establish new information, roads, highways, right? The way we memorize things is going over the same thing again and again. So different parts of the brain make a connection when you, when you learn something. And if you go through that memory again and again, the connection becomes stronger and stronger. And with psychedelics, it helps establish these connections and potentially strengthen them. And the sort of flexibility, which is this neuroplasticity, is increased after the administration of psychedelics. And also it has, has been shown in mice models and in, in, in vitro that LSD has anti-neuroinflammatory properties. So the brain tissue can also get infected or inflamed. And certain psychedelics have a protective, at least there's some basic evidence now, that they have a protective function that would prevent this inflammation. Alzheimer's is a neuroinflammation. Interesting. Uh, that That's new to me. and uh, It's complex. Yeah, I, but I, I think it's amazing. Uh, so thank you for answering that. And one thing, uh, when I started researching psychedelics, uh, um, that was a few years ago, and uh, you know, I started to to talk about it with immediate friends and also family member. I some of the most common comments that I got is, uh, "Oh, but those are drugs. Uh, you will get addicted," you know. Uh, they are dangerous. So I imagine that in your in your line of work, uh, you got at least uh, in the past, if not still, plenty of uh, of people, you know, um, concerns. Let's say. So, what are the most common concerns uh, and misconceptions that surround psychedelics, uh, and how do you normally address those? Uh, what What's your reply? to that. Yeah, in, in the public domain, there might be misconceptions such as psychedelics would be addicted. That is not the case. Of course, it is possible, like with anything, to develop a certain psychological addiction that you have a feeling, oh, I want this and I want this again and again. But due to the effects, the subjective effects, how someone experiences psychedelic experience, it's very unlikely that this happens. In fact, in most cases, people will have one experience couple in their lifetime. They will go into a trial, get treated once or get two doses and come out of this. Say, well, this, this was a such a dense and intense experience. I need years to process this. So it is possible to get psychologically addicted. I cannot say this doesn't exist. It's highly unlikely, but I would be lying if I said, there's nobody that abuses it because they're so in love with these effects. I'm sure these people exist. 
Secondly, there's no, no real toxicity with the classical psychedelics, such as LSD or psilocybin. If you dr dramatically overdose, I'm sure this can have very detrimental factors, uh, effects on the psyche of a lot of people. So important call to, to call to caution. And the third thing would be actual physical addiction, physiological addiction, that people have a so-called craving that they feel sick without the substance, like they would have on, on a prolonged habit of opiates, such as heroin, where you get an actual cigarettes even. You, you get an actual physical dependence. This does not happen with psychedelics. It's impossible. It is actually, you could say they have more of an anti-addictive property that after taking it once, you will not get the same effects the next day unless you double the dose. And if you double the dose again for the next day, it will not be enough. You would have to quadruple it. So it goes almost exponentially. And after a few days, if somebody really decides to take LSD for five consecutive days, the fifth day or the sixth day, it will not be possible to get this effect. It just doesn't work. So this is one of the misconceptions about the risks. And then, of course, do people go crazy? Well, it's not for everyone, and people should not take it in uncontrolled sec settings without supervision of ideally a medical doctor, right? More and more retreat centers are emerging. Obviously, it's everybody knows that people take psychedelics privately. This is not necessarily safe. We don't see a lot of emergencies there. Not as much as you compare to most other drugs, but I don't like this word aboutism. I don't want to compare psychedelics to other drugs and say one is better, the other is less, less dangerous. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Let's switch to your and talk about the Mind Foundation uh, and the, the research that you're doing at, at the foundation. First of all, for, for context, how did you go about uh, and create a foundation? Like, uh, who were your main partners? How did you involve an uh, institution? Uh, you know, this is just for context. Yeah, I mean, from the beginning, it was very important to us that we work as part of society and not against it. And we're not a political advocacy group. And if, and at the core of what we're doing in our, in our philosophy and our, our values is the scientific approach, which also is openness to mistakes. Willingness to change your opinion if evidence is found that proves the opposite of your previous opinion. So if, if we discover that psychedelics are more dangerous and helpful, we will abandon this in medicine. It does not look like it. It looks to the contrary. That's why we're moving forward with this work and many universities and other research institutions worldwide. But I think this is at the core of, of the values that we uphold, right? And this is also the principle of science, evidence-based approach. So this is where, really where we come from. That makes it easy for us to talk to those that are skeptics or those that don't know and we need to convince them in a way that psychedelics are not just bad or the psychedelic experiences without merit. We are looking at the evidence that, that exists. We're building new evidence from an unbiased perspective. At least it's always the goal. And see what is the best potential for medicine for human development. Psychedelics seem to hold promise. So we also, in that sense, we also started from the beginning, cooperating at Charity, starting a conference on drug science, that's the name of it, in 2017. Since 2019, we have our own biannual conference. Another one takes place this year. And more and more partnerships have emerged with different institutions. So we're partners 
with in the psilocybin study, for example, that that we are partners in. It's it's headed by Gerhard Kunda at the Central Institute of Mental Health in Mannheim. The Charité University Clinic in Berlin is another partner in this study. And naturally, the connections emerge in this way. We have done several smaller research projects, such as survey, psychological surveys. We speak at conferences, as I mentioned, our conference. So there's always a networking part going on and collaboration because different centers across the world, as I mentioned earlier, Johns Hopkins University has their own psychedelic and consciousness research center. Naturally, there are similar interests, and this is how you network in this field, of course, and, and build projects together. Yeah. So, specifically in the case of the Mayan Foundation, what is your current line of research studies, and what's the, the results so far that, that you've seen? And how are you, for example, cooperating with other research institutes, right? We, we, you were just mentioning, for example, John Hopkins, but that, that's just one of them. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've had new surveys running that have partly been published, pa partly are being in the process. One also wrote about a research instrument, a questionnaire that people use now and an approach to certain framework of beneficial and rather not so beneficial behaviors resulting from, from psychedelic experience, which would be avoidance-based behavior. Usually it doesn't solve the problem, makes sense, right? But having a, a scientific buildup of this makes it real. So there's an avoidance-based behavior versus acceptance-based behavior. We have demonstrated that acceptance-based behavior promotes positive th therapeutic outcomes. This is one small thing that came out of a survey. The bigger studies are running now, so I cannot say that there have been results. Of course, the, our therapists and our, our researchers in the episode trial, in the clinical study, have been there with most of the patients, and they can anecdotally tell you, yeah, well, this patient has really gotten better, this patient hasn't. But there has not been a real publication yet. There's still treating the last three patients and we'll publish the data beginning next year. Which type of study is that? Which type of patients and conditions and we, we which type of substances? Yeah, that's the episode trial. It's uh, the one I mentioned earlier, the world's biggest science-initiated clinical trial in psilocybin, metamorphosis mm -hmm. substance or compound for treatment-resistant depression. It has 144 patients. It is taking place in two study centers here in Berlin and Mannheim in the southwest of Germany. The partners in the study are Central Institute of Mental Health Mannheim, Charity and Mind Foundation. And it is also a real breakthrough that it has been financed by the German Federal Ministry of Research and Education with five and a half million euros. So they're about to conclude this in the next couple of months. At our conference, it will be at least an anecdotal reporting on the study. Also, patients from the study will have a place at the conference and talk about their experiences in the study, and it will be published early next. And then there's another another study going on that we recently received a small grant. And don't, don't, don't think that we have a lot of money. It's the opposite. And the money that we're receiving for these studies is not going to the Mind Foundation. It's going into projects. So we received another smaller grant for a, a study looking into acceptance 
acknowledged towards psychedelic assisted therapies. So this will be a large survey across Germany so for all German speakers. And there will also be interviews with different stakeholders because implementing psychedelic therapies towards the patients and the general public are one stakeholder. And you have the, those that treat them, the medical doctors, the psychotherapists. And last but not least, we of course want to make this accessible to everyone who can benefit from this would be those that pay for it, the health insurances. Yeah, that's a good question. Is it going to be covered by the, by the health insurance or not? So, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, with my colleagues, we founded the Ubeat Clinics here in Berlin. I'm, I'm sitting in one of their rooms, one of the treatment rooms when psychedelic therapy is already taking place. And they are using, again, it's psych, psychotherapy with one of the treatment methods being a ketamine infusion. And they have very good results with a, a, a wide range of symptoms and a wide range of patients. And it's already taking place now. But the health insurance does not cover it yet, unfortunately. Yeah. Some of the private insurances do. More will soon, hopefully, in the future. No, definitely in the future. The question is just when psilocybin will become an approved medicine for psychotherapy and psychiatry. And it will also be covered by the public health insurance in Germany. Sure. What needs to happen still for psychedelic drugs to be approved for treatment of certain conditions such you just mentioned, you know, the study that you that you're doing right now, depression, right? Yeah, I mean, here in Europe, we're usually more bureaucratic, more rigid. We're also part of this large European Union. So we have many agreements. We have the Schengen agreements. We have the, the EU agreements, then we have the United Nations agreements. There, there are a lot of different contracts that make innovations difficult. You know, German governments plan to legalize cannabis, but there are a lot of those agreements in the way. And then you have others in totally different areas of the world, such as Australia, that just decided, okay, with little preparation, they just legalize, not legalize, but they regulated MDMA and psilocybin as a psychiatric medicine that can be prescribed by any psychiatrist starting in July. It's two months from now, right? This is a very recent development, and it's quite crazy. Because in, in, especially in Australia, there haven't been much studies. Nobody has been trained in this different treatment method, and suddenly this is thrown on the medical market, and anyone, any psychiatrist can prescribe these drugs. So in Europe, it's going to take a little longer. I think also the United States will be a little faster. Especially since the FDA already in 2018 declared MDM and psilocybin breakthrough therapies. So it's going to take a bit longer in Europe. What needs to happen from my perspective? We need to finish the, the episode trial with promising results. Compass uh, has uh, Compass Pathways, it's a pharmaceutical company that had, has recently published data from their phase 2B trial. They are starting a phase 3 trial. So phase 2 is already a larger study, but it's a really large sample of patient population have in phase three. So the episode trial ours has to go well. Positive results. Then the start of a phase three trial. The problem is this needs so many millions of euros. We're not talking you know a two digit number, but possibly a hundred million or more. So how to get this financed without having all the big pharmaceutical companies having stake in this. This is very tricky. Our goal is to have a, a federal psilocybin that is really owned and the procedure to making it 
technically owned by the German government and that all the insurances will cover it. The phase three trial would be the biggest step that has to be approved. And after that, I think regulators will already regulators are changing their minds now and learning they're showing openness. Also the inside conferences here, there will be a regulators workshop with top level officials from the European medical agency, from the TGA, which is the regulatory board for drugs in Australia. Hopefully we'll get someone from the FDA as well. And then on the, on the national level as well in Europe. Regulators are opening up to the potential of psychedelics and psychiatric medicine. Interesting. Uh, let's talk about funding the research and the role of pharmaceutical companies. Because one will think, you know, that contrary to popular belief, uh, psychedelics drugs uh, do not cause uh, really dependencies for all the reasons that you listed uh, before which is not the case for SSRI. SSRI are usually medication that you state you have to take every day, you know, or most days at least, uh, usually at the same time, and they do cause uh, dependencies. At least some do, right? Uh, so I w- one will think that pharmaceutical companies have little to no interest uh, to the approval of psychedelic drugs. So what's the... What's the status there? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is a, an ongoing discussion in the psychedelic bubble among, among those idealists and these rebels against big pharma and so on. I think it's, it's oversimplifying the, the whole process of bringing a medication to the market. This is incredibly expensive. It's incredibly expensive. And pharma... Compass Pathways, right? They, are all, they have only been able to run such a large trial. Ours is 144 patients, and it was heavily underfunded. We're lucky that it's getting more public funding now. Compass Pathways didn't get public funding. They have 240 patients. And now they're starting a phase three trial. So without the investments of, of private actors, this would not be possible. So what is the alternative to, to, to this? Right. If, if you don't get public funding and you don't want to get into the hands of these evil investors, then the, then the only possibility is there will not be such trial. It's just simply not going to happen. So it's oversimplified. Of course, there's also, also this issue of ongoing, of ongoing medication versus giving people a substance a few times and then there's no more revenue for those who produce the medicine. Well, there's some truth in this, but still psychedelic therapies are expensive. They, they cost lots of time for therapists. There are usually two therapists in one session with one patient. That's only the dosing session, right? The dosing session itself needs two therapists that will be with a patient for probably five to six hours. And of course, it's part of a larger therapeutic regimen. So yes, it's, it's the, the manufacturers that make less money, but still sexual therapy is not cheap. We're, we also need to work on that. If you compare a lifelong medication of SSRIs to the two months treatment, then yes, if you look at a longer life time span, it would be much cheaper. Yes. But as a, as a, as a, as a compact time frame, it's also expensive. Mm. You just touched on, on a topic and, and I know this is one of the things that you're doing with the mind foundation, which is training of, uh, of medical, uh, experts, you know, like 
psychiatrist, uh, psychologist, uh, how do you retrain? Because I think in this case, we can talk about retraining, right? Uh, uh, like medical, uh, medical doctors and, you know, psychologists, etc., to be able to work uh, with patients and psychedelic drugs. I, I don't think we should call it retrain, and I'll tell you why. So the courses that we offer, the augmented psychotherapy training, in short, APT, is only available to licensed psychotherapists. And that's a bit of a difficulty internationally because in Brazil, there are other requirements to practice psychotherapy than in Europe. But that's, a, that's an issue of its own, right? Regulation and licensing, but it's only available to psychotherapists and licensed medical doctors. Complementary medical experts, practitioners of medicine that are not medical doctors or psychotherapists can do a one-year training, but the main full training as a psychedelic therapist would be two years. This is something for people that have already completed the, the full training, right? The medical training or psychotherapeutic training, and it comes on top of it. And as I mentioned earlier, psychedelic therapy will never replace pharmacotherapy or conventional psychiatric medicine. It will not replace it. I don't think so. And my colleagues don't think so. But it will be another another tool in the toolkit. So people don't need to relearn, but they need to learn something additionally. This is something they can also do. And we also want to have multi-professional teams. Ideally, in a psychedelic clinic, there would be a, a music therapist. There would be a psychiatrist. There would be conventional cognitive behavioral therapists, or all sorts of different groups, systemic therapy. And we're also open in a sense that medical doctors can be there. It doesn't have to be only psychiatrists. But potentially a surgeon could also sign in. But this person has a full medical training and is specialized in surgery. Okay, sure. But the person is licensed to practice medicine. Something that we don't want is to train more underground therapists that practice Metaphorically speaking, in their basement, in an uncontrolled setting, something that they believe is appropriate, of which there's no license at stake other than the license that we issue. Right? If somebody has just named themselves the great shaman, they can also start, start creating a framework in which sexual violence would be part of this, right? So this needs to be regulated, especially with patients that are in such a uniquely different state of being, you know, even things like touch, touching the hand of the patient or so, this can become very tricky. Consent, how much can they give consent during the session? All this changes. There would be a risk to, to grant a certificate or to license someone that is not properly qualified to medically treat people. That's our approach. For people that are interested in, in psychedelic drugs, and we like to to start approaching them, right? What what would be your your suggestion? Yeah, depending on where you are, there might be studies happening in your area. I we have uh, friends and colleagues at the Maastricht University there, or to to start with a list and not go in detail. So in Maastricht, in Basel, in Switzerland, at, at Zurich University at Imperial College London, at King's College London. There are different locations in Europe, plus the United States, that are also looking for, 
for for people to partake in psychedelic triads, tri, tri, psychedelic studies that are healthy, not only looking at patients. So if somebody's interested in having such an experience in a controlled and definitely safe setting, and who will also be sure that there's no risk for themselves, that they can be screened properly, that they can be checked if there will be a risk for that person, this would be the way to go. And there are, of course, lots of, there are, of course, people that get drugs from the black market. There's also this issue with research chemicals that are not yet fully regulated. All this exists, but I would not advise people to, to jump into this because these are very powerful compounds and they, they trigger very powerful experiences. They have at least the potential to, and this can be quite disruptive. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe. For people that are considering, uh, you know, doing it in the comfort of their own home without medical supervision, maybe you can show us the other side. Uh, like, what what is it like instead doing it with medical supervision? Why is this so important to have uh, integration sessions uh, afterwards? Yeah, I mean, not just that. As I, as I mentioned, the the uh, the studies with healthy healthy subjects. I don't think there will be so much preparation or so much follow-up, which I'm sure a lot of people could benefit from. We as the Mind Foundation will also offer integration workshops to people that have had psychedelic experiences or are interested in having such experiences. To learn tools, you know, to learn theory and practice, how to make more and how to bring value-based change into your life, positive lasting change, instead of just having a trip one time and then whatever, making it just a memory. So I don't know what to advise for people who, who would like to try it privately. That's, that's not not something that I that I would advise. I would advise caution, and I think more importantly, something that I can recommend is there are also fantastic ways of altering your consciousness without substances. And while this 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 call with you has been focused mostly on on, on psychoactive substances, psychedelic drugs, it's very important to know that the Mind Foundation is not about substances. We're about medical treatment, psychotherapy, human development, and psychedelic experience is one such tool that we have. And again, you have to understand psychedelic experience is not necessarily only brought by substances, but also by meditation. Breath work is very powerful. Sports, dancing, there are different ways, sensory deprivation things, they're exciting ways that can induce an altered state of consciousness that can be very psychedelic without taking drugs. Absolutely. Let's imagine that psychedelics get approved tomorrow. How could this change, like how we live uh, as, a, as a society possibly, you know, as individuals? Uh, and maybe what are the business opportunities uh, also associated with, with an approval of those compounds? So... I'm, I'm going to stick exactly with what you suggested. Psychedelics get approved tomorrow. Yeah. And they are, they are, you, you can, you can practice medicine with them. And that means you can also open retreat centers for healthy, healthy people that want to have such, a, such experiences. Like, like it's already partly happening in the, in the Netherlands. It's not legal, but it's tolerated in a gray zone. Let's say this becomes enabled in Germany tomorrow. Um, I don't think we're ready for it. I don't think there will be a lot of malfeasance 
there will be businesses popping up that have very guruistic, religious, dogmatic approaches to psychedelic that are overly enthusiastic, that promise you a different life and to, to, to make you the best possible person you could be. And very few of them, if any, will hold their promises. There will be people that go crazy. There will be people that have very intense experiences in large groups where, you know, if there's business interest and there's not enough regulation, this could mean that people just throw 200 people in a large room, give them all LSD. Some people start screaming while others want total silence. Both of them had a bad experience. And then these people go home and they may be traumatized or they need someone to talk to who understands what they just went through. And that person's not the, not the buddy who just had the same experience, but somebody who's really qualified and understands and has a, has a grasp of psychological processes and therapeutic, therapeutic work. So I don't think we're ready for this. And I don't think if psychedelics were legalized tomorrow, society would be better, become better. What we need is a, a very reasonable, mature approach that also takes responsibility for those that may not have the knowledge to or the control over themselves to practice such altered states in a, in a safe way without being paternalistic to create a, a, a consensus understanding of what healthy states of mind would be. To, uh, to, uh, to develop a framework, we call this Bewusstseinskultur, culture of consciousness, develop a societal framework in which we know what is good for us and what isn't. I don't think giving Donald Trump psychedelics would make him a better person. And you cannot give people psychedelics and expect that suddenly they will stop flying to India and South Africa. What do I know? Jetting around the world. I don't think they will stop this. But if, if we have a different, if, if we have a systematic approach or an open discourse in society, that is participatory, not just hearing about some people, some climate activists gluing themselves to the street, but having an open discourse and people getting a feeling of connectedness through psychedelic experience, for example. And being part of this discourse, understanding how this all relates, this could really change, but we need a systematic approach. Then coming back to the medical paradigm that I mostly talked about, well, I don't think, I don't think we have enough therapists and psychiatrists ready they are not ready. And if psychedelics were legalized tomorrow, I mean, I mentioned this for Australia. You know, this is going to happen in July. I'm talking to colleagues on a weekly basis. They don't know how will, how will the, all those therapists or the psychiatrists, how will they treat patients? They have no expertise. They don't have a psychedelic therapist training, right? It's, it's a different, different therapeutic approach. And this is something that needs to be learned. So if it was legalized as medicine tomorrow, nobody would know how to use it. Yeah. <laughs> how, when you say we need to develop a systematic approach, how do you imagine that that will be? What will be this approach? A rigorous training, such as we offer. And I'm not saying this to, to advertise for a training, but. If you use, I mean, if you want to, to transport people in an airplane, you need a license as a pilot and you cannot just, just, just fly a few times with your body as a passenger. 
or as a co-pilot. No, this this is a this is serious training because it's a powerful instrument. So there needs to be a rigorous training from professionals to professionals based on evidence, not on beliefs. So somebody who has used lots of psychedelics, who has some kind of shamanism training from South America, who hang out, who hung out with the Shipibos and drank ayahuasca for five years, you cannot just bring that to Europe and, and think this is applicable here. That's a totally different cultural context. And these are cultures that are not like ours. Their approach, their understanding of medicine is not our understanding of medicine. So we need to develop something here that is based on universal mechanisms of therapeutic change that we can, that, that are based in science that we can then apply into training into secondary training. Yeah, absolutely. Marvin, this has been a wonderful conversation. Is there anything that listeners or, or the audience uh, could do to support the Mount Foundation that, that you can think of? Oh, there, there are loads, loads to do. I mean, we're, we're tremendously grateful for any donation. As I mentioned, we don't have a lot of money. If you go to our website, it all looks great, but we're a small organization. And what we're doing is we're public benefits. So we're charitable under German law. Nobody's here to make money, but to make society and the world a better place. So any donation would be much appreciated. We have a membership program for people who want to get involved become part of the community we have a lots of cool stuff like interdisciplinary online course on subjective substances called molecules we offer trainings we offer workshops anything people want i think we have it related to psychedelics except for drugs because we don't do it <laughs> and of course there's the inset contents which is probably the highlight of this year yeah uh we will leave uh all the resources mentioned, plus maybe some educational material in the show notes and in the description of the YouTube video. But Marvin, this has been really an amazing conversation. I I care deeply about this topic and uh, I'm glad uh, that we were able to sit together and, and record an episode on, on psychedelics. And maybe, you know, after the studies have been published uh, in January, we will do around two at one point. Thank you very much for, mm-hmm. for being here. Sure. My pleasure. It was fun. I hope I brought the message across. It's a very complex area and it's, it's hard to condense the points because always there's so much to consider. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, uh, for listeners who have questions, uh, We'll leave, you know, the Mind Foundation contact uh, and as well, you know, we will read every comments uh, um, like on, on YouTube. So thank you very much, Marvin. And for listeners, we'll see you on the next episode. Bye. Thank you, Sarah. Bye-bye. That's all from today's episode. Thank you so much for watching or listening. If you find this episode valuable, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel or to the Polyweb podcast on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. It would be fantastic if you could leave us a rating, a review, or a comment, 
as this really helps other listeners find the show. All the resources mentioned in this episode will be linked in the description and in the show notes. See you on the next episode. And if you cannot wait until next week, you can watch this episode right here that relates to some of the things that we talk about in this episode. Bye.